Welcome to Talk Purpose and Truth with Eden and Kim, shifting you into higher consciousness. The show that elevates, uplifts, and encourages listeners to grow, heal, awaken, and evolve. Eden and Kim include bold topics, special interviews with inspiring guests, intuitive readings, channeled messages from beyond, including celebrities, hot topics to expand your awareness, and time for questions from the audience. Tune in for unprecedented truth, authenticity, on-purpose discussions, and magical moments. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Talk, Purpose, and Truth. It's Kim and Eden. Hi, everyone. Hi. How are you, Eden? (laughs) Hi, I'm, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm awesome. I'm excited because we're we're getting ready to actually be back in studio next time. So um, we have this this extra Zoom we're doing, and then we get to go in studio. So it feels crazy because it's been so long. I know it'll be weird in there talking to you in person. Right. Yesterday, it's so interesting because yesterday, because we're so used to still having masks and being so careful. You know, even though. I'm vaccinated. And yesterday I took my younger daughter, Nia, to a class and I won't say where, just in case, but (laughs) no one, no one in the whole place was wearing masks. And I was like, oh, this feels really weird. Like I'm in a movie because it's, I haven't been around that in so long. And I went up to the owner and I'm like, is this, are you guys okay with this? And she's like, oh yeah, it's up to you. So literally Nia and I were the only one who wore masks the whole time. And cause I didn't feel comfortable because there was about 40 people in one pretty small area mm. and she's not, she's not vaccinated. And I'm going, gosh, all these people are, it's like, it just was so weird. And it shows you how we as humans adapt because a long time ago, it would have been weird to see one person even wearing a mask in public. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of changes going on in the world. I know it's the opposite now that we feel like it's odd that we don't have a mask on. Right. I know. Even so though you, I, if you have the shot, the vaccine, it still feels weird. Yeah. Yeah, it, it does. So yeah, I'll actually, I'll be able to see you and hug you next time. And it feels like almost like we're not supposed to. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so weird. It'll be, yeah. It'll be good though. Yeah. Um, Anyways, I'm going to jump right in and introduce our guest because she has such just beautiful content that we're going to discuss that you'll all love and get inspired and helped by. So Thais Gibson is an author, speaker, and co-creator of the Personal Development School. She's extremely passionate about personal growth, the subconscious mind, and connecting with others. With an MA and over 13 certifications, she strives to continuously learn and grow. She is best known for her contributing work and research on attachment theory and the impact of attachment trauma on adult romantic relationships. She overlaps attachment trauma challenges with personal core wounds, limiting beliefs, and emotional patterns at the subconscious level to give us a deeper insight into ourselves and relationships. Her book, The Attachment Theory Guide, was written on this topic, and her YouTube channel often focuses on this area. After overcoming challenges with addiction in her early years, she is profoundly determined to educate people on how they can reprogram painful or limiting programs in their own mind and retrain their brain to achieve relationship fulfillment, abundance, and personal freedom in their lives. Mm. So welcome, Thais. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, and she's from Canada. So she's yeah. we get to have someone international again. So that's exciting <laughs> as well. 
Did you grow up in Canada? Yes. So you're originally from there. Yeah, I was born in Mississauga, so just outside of Toronto. And then um, I did go to school in Georgia and then Florida. So I lived in the U.S. for like seven, just under seven years. Um, And then I did come back here afterwards. All my my family is here and, and all that good stuff. So, Okay. And are you familiar with California? Have you been here? Yes. Yeah. I've oh, been a okay. couple times to San Diego. Um, um, oh my goodness. Some Island. I can't remember. Cor- Coronado. Coronado. Yes. Oh, Coronado. Coronado. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and, um, and I was at, I was in San Francisco once for, for a couple of days at one point as well for a conference. So nice. Yeah. It's beautiful okay. out there. Much, much nicer weather than here. Yeah. yeah. Well you, and you went to some of the nicer places too. Yes. <laughs> the touristy okay. places for yeah, sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get into this. Um, what is the attachment theory that you are, I just can't wait to hear everything about it. It's just, it just seems like it's uh, right up my alley. And I know that I, it, it is affecting, it affects relationships in every way. So I'd like you to share more about that, romantic relationships, especially. How does that impact the romantic yeah. relationships? So the analogy, so attachment theory in general was originally um, John Bowlby's theory and Mary Mary Ainsworth, and they sort of worked together on this theory um, in in around the 1970s. And it's sort of been something that's evolved for a long period of time. And it's at this point now where literally we're creating something called integrated attachment theory. And it's really about like how essentially we get these programmed rules for relating to others and they really translate into our adult romantic relationships. So the way you can think of attachment theory in general is essentially that like the analogy I often give to people is if you have two people playing a board game and they have a different rule book for how to play the the board game. They're going to run into a lot of conflicts because we're playing the game by different rules. And when we're going through our early lives, we essentially get these subconsciously programmed sets of rules for how to relate to other people. And it begins with our caregiver relationships. And so our caregivers or parents um, will teach us different things by what's modeled, what they're saying repetitively, what our firsthand experiences are with them. All of those things are the three ways the subconscious mind gets programmed. And those become our rules for how we relate to other people. But the problem is that there's different rule books that people are often playing by and it can create all kinds of chaos and sort of storms in our relationship dynamics. So for people who aren't familiar, there's four main attachment styles. There's our securely attached style, which is like the healthy sort of style. And then there's our three insecurely attached styles, which are our anxious preoccupied, our fearful avoidant, also known as the disorganized or anxious avoidant attachment style, and then the dismissive avoidant attachment style. Mm. And mm-hmm. how does that impact those relationships? So in I'll give, yeah, yeah, I'll give a few. <laughs> I wanted to pause before I dive into all of the. So what I'll do is I'll give um, some really key components of those different attachment styles. So hopefully somebody listening can find themselves in that and be like, oh, that's me, and that's my husband, or that's my wife, or that's my current partner, and it really helps sort of shed light on just what dramatic impacts there can be on these relationship dynamics. So mm-hmm. securely attached individuals to start off with, they essentially get healthy rules for relating. So they basically grow up, and a lot of their needs are met. There's a lot of consistency, safety, order, a lot of trust and stability in the relationship dynamic. So obviously this person grows up and they think, well, it's easy to trust people. It's easy to relate to other people. I can connect and rely on other people. I can be vulnerable with people and that's safe because a lot of their imprints at the subconscious level from childhood were 
that stuff, which is great. So that's our securely attached. That's what we're all trying to get to to if we're not already there. And then our three insecurely attached styles, you can think of as sort of existing along a continuum. So at one end of the continuum, we were anxious, preoccupied. And this is the individual who in their childhood, they have some form of perceived or real abandonment. So this can be that they have really warm caregivers who are very loving, but then the caregivers work for 10 hours a day. And there's this constant like bonding that feels like it's taken away. Or it can be that there are caregivers where one is warm and one is cold. And that juxtaposition between the two creates this disparity, which is like, well, when I'm with mom, I feel connected. When I'm with dad, I feel like there's an abandonment taking place. And so what happens is because the subconscious mind is reprogrammed or programmed through repetition plus emotion, even if there isn't a huge abandonment where one caregiver literally leaves and never comes back, if there's just a repetition of, you know, constant change from closeness to the lack of closeness, it creates these major wounds of abandonment. And so this individual usually grows up with these huge fears of being abandoned, alone, excluded, disconnected, rejected, not good enough. And they put so much emphasis on their romantic relationships, but it's often at the expense of the relationship to self. It's like, let me people please, let me be boundaryless. Let me do anything that people want so I can gain closeness and not have to deal with abandonment. But obviously when we leave out the relationship to ourselves, that has its own long-term consequences to our relationships. So that's sort of one end of the continuum. And this adult grows up and they become needy in relationships, clingy, fearful, all these different things. So they often end up in relationships, you know, as fate would have it, um, with somebody who's more dismissive avoidant at the other end of the continuum. And dismissive avoidance are usually individuals who have some kind of neglect in childhood. And that can be, you know, overt neglect where like food's not on the table, hygiene's not taken care of, or it can be like really covert neglect where it's just emotional neglect, where caregivers are just not emotionally available. They shame feelings. They repress feelings. They don't talk about feelings. They say, oh, don't be a baby. Don't cry. It's fine. Or there's just no room to have like an emotional conversation. And so what happens is because we're wired for attunement and we need that connection in childhood, what essentially takes place is a child grows up feeling like they have to cut off a part of themselves and repress their own emotions. And they learn to make these subconscious associations that say, vulnerability is not safe. It only gets me rejected and and it makes me feel really crappy. So I'm just going to go out of my way in life to take care of myself, repress my own emotions, not pay attention to that part of myself, and definitely not have serious or vulnerable, vulnerable commitments and relationships with others. And so they grow up and they become the person who's commitment phobic, afraid to settle down, gets into relationships. And as soon as things get warm or too serious, it's like, ooh, they want to bolt in the other direction. And then, of course, you often get those two attracted to one another, the the clingy person with the person who's afraid of commitment. And it can create, you know, in, in that example, tremendous pain and challenge and dynamics. And then our very last one is the fearful avoidant. And the fearful avoidant attachment style is somebody who basically experiences both sides of the continuum. It's almost like they're caught in the middle there. They have the anxious side and the anxious fears and wounds, but also the dismissive, the the commitment wounds. And this is because they usually have a lot of stability or volatility in their childhood. So essentially what happens with them is like, let's just say one example that's very common is a parent is an addict or an alcoholic. And so sometimes, let's pretend it's the mother, sometimes mom is 
drinking and she's mean and scary, but sometimes mom's drinking and she's really warm and fuzzy. And sometimes mom's sober and she's really nice. And sometimes mom's sober, but she's going through withdrawals and she's really scary and mean. And so there's just no consistency. So this person grows up and they learn, I want love. I want closeness. I want connection. It feels good. And I have some good experiences with it, but it's also terrifying at the same time. And so they go through life having the the fears of abandonment and fears of being alone, but they also have these really profound fears of too much closeness because sometimes closeness is painful and bad. And they really struggle more than anything else with feeling like they can't trust other individuals. And it's really difficult for them to like let their guard down. They're really emotionally available for people. They really are good at connecting to others. When it comes to opening themselves, relying on people, trusting other people, it's really difficult for them because of some of those painful past experiences. And so in their adult relationships, they're the people that are like, come here, come get close. And people get close and they're like, get back, (laughs) stay away. And it's this hot, cold experience. And it's difficult for the partner, loved ones, of course, of the fearful avoidant, but also really difficult for the fearful avoidant themselves because they constantly are questioning their relationships, flip-flopping. And a lot of the time, not realizing where that's actually coming from is their own subconscious wounds and fears, not necessarily the person that they're in the relationship with as much. Hmm. Wow. (laughs) That is amazing because it just makes so much sense. And um, yeah. I think if more people understood this, they would be able to understand one another in relationships better. Yes. And there's certain needs like, you know, there there's little recipes to heal this stuff because these are just programs that we've collected. And the same way we get imprinted by them, we can de-imprint them or reprogram them and fire and wire new neural pathways and let old ones atrophy. And we can shift out of these patterns. And we can understand, like it's, you can imagine two people in a relationship, one's maybe more anxious and needy and one's more dismissive, avoidant and not available. And you can imagine two of them together and they can really care about each other and love each other, but it's like their rules are so different and their needs and expectations are so different and their love languages are so different. And so they get into this like little emotional storm and nothing will, will make or break relationships like somebody's attachment and style. So when mm. people can become aware and then learn the needs and then learn how to reprogram their patterns, it really is the way out of unhealthy relationships and into thriving relationships. Got it. And what if somebody, what if there's a romantic relationship and the person is so in so denial though, like they're in denial that anything is wrong because they're so in that escape type of mode, what can be done? It's a really beautiful question. I've, you know, the, the one thing I would say is when I was running my, my personal practice for a long time, like that would be the number one thing I would look for is I didn't care what people's attachment style was. I didn't care if there was infidelity, cheating, like I, whatever it was, it was are both parties willing to show up and do the work. And I think that there's this really important period that takes place where it's like, yes, we can leverage people. We can like tell them what our boundaries are and non-negotiables. And one person can do the heavy lifting and lead the way, but the other person has to at least be on board. They don't have to be doing like reprogramming of their attachment style, but they have to be on board to be like, okay, you said, let's talk about our needs. And when you bring up the needs and the conversation, I'll actually be present and then try to figure out what mine are and share too. Like there has to be at least minimal work being done from the other side, but it doesn't have to be like one person can lead the way and do the work in terms of like the major features are, can you learn your boundaries? Can you learn what your needs are in relationships? Can you learn about your expectations and really share about them? Because like Mm -hmm. the anxious preoccupied, for example, the needier person in the relationship may be like, I want to spend 
six days a week together in the honeymoon phase of the relationship. And, and the dismissive avoidant might be like, I really love you. I really care about you. But like two days a week is like, I'm capped at that because they tend to rely on themselves to self-soothe and to kind of like emotionally regulate. And, and so, you know, if you have two people who really care for one another, you can see how easy it would be, for example, for the dismissive avoidant to be like, I want two days a week and the anxious person to go, you don't love me. You don't care about me. You're not interested. You're rejecting me when that's usually not the case. So, you know, we have to learn to understand our own subconscious expectations and talk about them, put them on the table and then say, six days a week is ideal for me, two days for you. Okay. Let's meet in the middle and let's practice accepting one another and making space for one another. And, you know, there's, there's different life cycles of a relationship and it's sort of its own whole different conversation, but we start in the dating phase. Then we go into the honeymoon and then we go into the power struggle phase of a relationship. And it's a very important and necessary phase of the relationship. And the key ingredients in there to transition out of that and into the stability, commitment, and bliss phases, which finalize the relationship life cycle are, um, you know, can we show up and can we practice vulnerability, meaning talk about our needs, share our expectations, talk about our fears, open ourselves. And can we practice acceptance and learning to make those compromises, make space for somebody with a different operating system than us and learn to understand them and accept that, yes, I want to spend six days a week, let's pretend, but you know, my, my loved one wants to spend two days a week okay, like uh, let me practice working on myself so I can be okay with somewhere in the middle, three, four days a week. And then let me learn to whatever I can't get from my relationships, meet within myself. Because what the really interesting part is, is part of healing is learning to balance out. So if the person who's anxious is constantly relying on their own relationship or on their external relationships, so much of healing is Can I learn to meet some of my own needs? Can I learn to be comfortable spending time alone with myself? Can I learn to manage my own internal dialogue and thought processes and self-soothe and do some of the things I would normally rely on others for? And can I meet somebody halfway because I'm willing to fill my own cup halfway to make up for that difference? And that's what healthy interdependency is about. It's let me meet my needs and have a relationship to myself and let me have vulnerability and openness and, and closeness with somebody else. And they're not mutually exclusive things. Right, right. And is that so is it common for this stuff to show up later in the relationship? Yeah, it's a really good question. So that's the really tricky part is you can once you get when people are really well versed in attachment theory and attachment styles, there's certain things you can look for early on and I can share a couple. Um, But what we will usually see is somebody's full attachment style tends to emerge after the honeymoon phase. Because when we're in the dating and honeymoon phase, we're like vetting somebody, we're getting to know somebody, we have elevated neurochemicals like phenylethylamine, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, all these like attraction and bonding and closeness neurochemicals. And when they sort of die out and and we adapt and, and that neurochemical cocktail sort of, you know, diminishes, that's when we really see somebody because kind of the mask comes off. Nobody's on their best behavior anymore. The power struggle phase is like somebody's reintegrating their sense of self into the relationship and they're more honest with their needs and all these different things. So that's when we'll really see it. But some things you can look for early on is like one big distinguishing feature of the dismissive avoidant is because they've got that fear of like closeness. You'll usually get somebody who it's like, if you're paying attention, they will be charming and charismatic and intellectually available, but not really emotionally available. They may ask you about yourself, but most of the way they share about their own 
um, experiences will be like the very factual way. So like in childhood, I had this experience and it went like this. They won't say in childhood, this thing happened to me and I felt this way. And this was the emotional experience of it. They'll really be sharing from a place when they communicate anything that's like kind of with the emotional component removed. And then anxious, preoccupied individuals, you'll see that they're very big people pleasers very quickly and that they really show up to like please and connect and and they're very charming and charismatic, but they're really poor with their boundaries. They won't often express their individual opinions, that sort of thing. And then fearful avoidance, you'll see quite quickly and early on, they're very emotionally available for others, but they're not sharing about themselves in the same way. And it's like this, you know, they make you feel really comfortable, really open. But when it comes to them saying, these are my feelings, these are my experiences, you won't see a lot of it. Or if you do, you'll see the more that they share about their experiences, the more they send, they tend to withdraw after. And it's because they have this like trust hangover. Like oh, I shared something, oh my gosh, that was too much. I feel bad about that. And then they sort of pull back to protect themselves and try to re-regulate. Fascinating. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. We can apply that in many ways to ourselves and people we know, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> this can help everyone, you know, understand one another better and repair things as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, so I don't know if you asked, can I talk if you answered this, but our next question is how do you, how do our early childhood experiences with attachment affect our subconscious mind? Yeah. So it's sort of like seasoned in there, but it's really important for people to know kind of exclusively. So it's, it's when we get into dynamics, we have three ways that the subconscious mind is programmed. I said it like really quickly in passing. It's what we see, what we hear repetitively and what we are having firsthand experiences of. So, so like, for example, like, let's just say outside of attachment theory, if you always hear your parents saying, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough money. You're going to have lack of beliefs at the subconscious level, obviously, because you hear the repetition of that. If you have parents who are modeling to you through what they show you repetitively, that there's lots of fighting in relationships, like then you grow up to believe that that's what love is and that volatility and fighting is passionate and exciting and normal. And, and, and we create this subconscious comfort zone around it. And, and maybe to somebody else, like that's very um, common for fearful avoidance that like for them, love is volatility because they were the ones that had mom as the addict or the alcoholic or whatever it might be. So they love in that way. And, and so whatever we're repeatedly exposed to that elicits an emotional response becomes our framework for how we learn to relate to others. And that can be great if we're secure, but most people are not securely attached nowadays. And so, yeah. you know, it sort of puts us in a, in a tough position. And that's why when we can realize that like, even if we have a, an insecure attachment style, that's, there's nothing wrong with us. Like we're not like bad or defective or messed up. It's just, Hey, we've got some programs that may be working more against us than for us in this specific area of life. And just like we got programmed with these things, we can reprogram them using repetition plus emotion of new behaviors and new thought processes and feelings. And we can actually shift out of that dynamic overall. Well, it's good to hear that it could be healed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, that, I love that the emotion and the constant exposure, because that makes sense. Like if, if something's traumatic for a little while, but then the next 10 years, it's like, it's like harmonious and you feel joy, then most likely you're going to feel a lot more of that and be able to kind of heal the other thing. Exactly. And we're changing all the time. So like people will get so worried and go, oh, I had this really insecure upbringing. And it's like, yeah, but if you show up and so much of healing, in my opinion, is like, 
you know, a lot of our wounds come from childhood and early caregiver experiences. Then they tend to be magnified or like exacerbated in our adult romantic relationships. And it's because relationships are showing us to ourselves. It's because they're mirroring to us what we need healing and what's showing up. Like the interesting thing, when you look at just like dismissives and anxious and they're often together, well, anxious, preoccupied individuals, they're, they're in a dismissive relationship to themselves. They're constantly dismissing their own feelings, their own needs, their own boundaries to please others. And then dismissive avoidance who are so focused on themselves are like in an anxious relationship to themselves, always worried about their own time and how much time they have to themselves and, and sort of pushing others away. So we, we attract people who are truly showing us to ourselves at the subconscious level and showing us our wounds and bringing the stuff to the surface. But what we have to be able to do to heal is like, we have to become our own parents in a way. It's like whatever we didn't get from our caregivers, we have to learn to give to ourselves. Whatever we got that wasn't serving, we have to get rid of. So if we got a story that's, we're not good enough, we're going to be abandoned, we're going to be rejected, we can't trust people. We have to heal that by changing the narrative of ourselves and rinsing and repeating enough and finding evidence to oppose that painful original narrative consistently enough that over time, it's like, we get to sort of control, alt, delete that program and and move on and heal. And we're not subject to have to be the victim of our past circumstances. So, Okay. Wow. <laughs> very helpful. Very helpful. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, um, you know, personally, I, I've gone through almost four years of really severe hormone imbalance. Um, long story, but lots of really traumatic side effects and symptoms and, you know, finally getting solutions, but it's been horrible. And it led me to drinking too much because I was trying to find mm -hmm. something to band-aid the symptoms because they were so bad. And, um, and so I had to get help for that and stop drinking. And um, I have now and I'm doing great. Um, but I am curious, um, what is the relationship between addiction and the subconscious? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. Congratulations, by the way. Thank on you. Sobriety and, and sort of turning this an exciting time. Um, so, and this is something I went through as well. I mean, I, when I was 14, I had a bunch of childhood trauma. Basically when I was 14 years old, I got addicted to painkillers after a knee surgery. And I didn't even know like what addiction was when it was happening. It was so crazy. Um, and I, it created this like seven year stint for me of like trying to figure that out. Um, so I very much relate and understand, and I think it teaches us really powerful stuff, but, you know, as a general rule, what's happening and in your case, it's such a, a more challenging dynamic, but I'll, I'll share the same pieces, which is like, whenever we are, there's a great quote by Dr. Gabor Mate, and he says, not everybody, um, who has severe trauma becomes an addict, but every single person who's an addict has severe trauma. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea that like what's happening is our subconscious mind is uh, every day, all day long, our subconscious mind, every single thing that it does is a strategy to get needs met. So from the television shows we watch to the types of conversations we have, they're actually all about our subconscious needs. And so we may have a conversation like just that's bickering with somebody else. Oftentimes when you find two people bickering in relationships all the time, they both have a subconscious need for emotional connection. They don't know how to get it in healthy forms. So their subconscious mind goes, we're going to get it in the fastest way possible, not the best way possible because our subconscious is very survival oriented. So it starts to fight because it's like, at least if we're, you know, both bickering, we're both emotionally present, we're both emotionally invested, emotionally involved with each other. Great. This strategy works to get our emotional needs met for connection. So this is what's essentially happening as an analogy when it comes to addiction is addiction is usually that we have powerfully or profoundly unmet needs. 
and we probably have some pain in there too. And a lot of that pain usually exists because we get imprinted and those imprints have a major impact on our internal dialogue throughout the day. So for example, if I have a childhood trauma and then I feel shame or I feel like I'm not good enough or I don't belong, well, then that becomes a story of myself. And we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day. And that becomes, you know, the, the inner dialogue I have throughout the day with, with myself. And so what happens is we've got these unmet needs and then we've got these painful patterns of internal dialogue. And this is our inner relationship to self. And if the inner relationship to self becomes too painful or too difficult, then we need to find a strategy and our subconscious mind is going to find the fastest way possible, not the best way possible to get its needs met. And a lot of those needs will be to escape pain. So really what's so important for healing is to learn that like, hey, if we have an addiction or we're struggling with something, you know, that doesn't make us bad. That makes us hurt. And when we can go inside and be like, hey, what are these pain points here and what needs to be resolved and what do I really need to cater to and how can I meet my needs and how can I change the story of myself? Then in doing that, we really get to shift out of that, that painful cycle. And, and so what we say is it's like up updating your strategies to get your needs met. So if for me, for example, painkillers were helping to escape pain, well, if I can start reprogramming my internal dialogue and my thought patterns throughout the day and use reprogramming tools and change the story about myself, well, then I escape pain at the root level. I escape pain in a much healthier way. And then my subconscious mind no longer needs to rely on painkillers as a source of escaping pain. And if I can get my needs met at the same time to feel comfortable and safe in the world when I had these feelings of being unsafe and I can learn to have healthy strategies and build healthy relationships and communicate my needs and, and share my boundaries and use my voice to communicate my boundaries and all these different things. Well, now I feel safer in my world. And now my subconscious doesn't have to run from anything. So if we heal those root level issues, which really just boil down to unmet needs or painful stories we have about ourselves, when we reprogram those things, that's the only way we feel emotional pain or suffering. And so as we shift out of that, we no longer have to rely on more unhealthy strategies to get these needs met because we've updated the strategies to get these important tasks sort of settled. Right. Wow. It's so good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know what I was going to ask you? I want to back up for a second. When you talked about watching the TV shows, this is just something that clicked for me. Um, I have a hard time watching when there's a violence me in too a show okay and i watch a lot of lifetime movies and like towards the end they're always like there's some sort of fight like physical fight and i always want to fast forward through it so what does that say about me okay so <laughs> or us so, <laughs> so i love this i actually have the same experience um so it, the the I'll share this story because this is such a good story and it really paints the picture and then I'll go into it. But I worked with this lady once. This is like seven or eight years ago, probably. And she came to me. She had just finished getting her PhD and she was like, I finished my PhD. And for the last six months, I haven't even applied to a single job. All I do all day long is sit and read um, fantasy novels. It was like Twilight novels or whatever and watch basically like reruns of reality TV shows. And so to me, like what I know is that our subconscious mind is always trying to get needs met and it's trying to get them met through the filter of our beliefs. 
So I, the way I like to think of this is like a maze, like your needs, your, your mind's trying to get its needs met through the maze of all your beliefs, which form all the different walls. And so we did this woman's personality needs. And we basically have this subconscious set of personality needs that are driving our behavior at all times. Now her top personality needs came out as emotional connection, social connection, and community. And then she had these beliefs about herself that are like, I am disliked. I will be rejected. I'm not good enough. Um, I feel unsafe around people. So here's this woman who, if you imagine like her personal maze in a way, she has these huge unfulfilled needs and your subconscious mind isn't going to do anything else until the top needs are met. It gets fixated and keeps trying to go about these different things. But because she had all these fears around people, then her way of getting needs met is to watch reality TV shows where she feels emotionally connected to the characters and read these fantasy novels where she feels emotionally connected to the characters there as well. Mm. And so what happens is because those beliefs were blocking her, she has to get her needs met in these super indirect ways, which like you go have a nice conversation with somebody for an hour, your cup is way fuller than if you watch six hours of reality television because it's a real connection versus something more fictitious, right? Or indirect. So she was, her brain was unable to move on to trying to look for jobs because it was like, my buckets are not filled in terms of my top needs. Mm. So when we're watching like Lifetime movies or we're watching um, shows like that, and when we don't like violence, oftentimes we have high needs for emotional connection and we care for like feeling bonded to people connected. And often we're watching like Lifetime shows or reality TV shows because we like are interested in people and human dynamics and the happy ending. Sometimes it's like romantic relationships as a personality need as well. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's Lifetime movies (laughs) and then when we, when we fear violence or that, that pulls away from it, it can be partially because it's a threat to emotional connection, right? Violence absolutely opposes maybe one of our highest personality needs. Or it can also be um, that we have a high need for either comfort or security. And again, comfort and security. And so usually when when I hear stories like that, it's like, okay, those are going to be some of your top personality needs. And when we watch stuff like that, it really opposes it. So our subconscious mind actually pushes to like reject watching and basically exposing ourselves to things, empty our buckets instead of fill them. Oh, exactly. Yep. Eden, you nailed it. Watch, that's why we both love reality TV. Yeah, I know. I knew you were thinking that. <laughs> uh, makes so much sense, though. Yeah, yeah, and it's crazy because as you start to watch, you'll see like everything we do all day, what we spend our time thinking about, what we talk to other people about, what we spend our time on, where we invest our money or energy. All of these things are actually just our top drivers, our top personality needs that our subconscious is all day long trying to meet. And it's just meeting them in like all these different forms wherever it can. And it all boils down to these same patterns. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, Next question. How can we retrain our mind to transform any limiting program in each of the areas of life? So, okay. So I'll give it a starter tool. So um, this is one of my favorites. It's really simple, really easy. And it kind of like gives people a leg up on probably what a lot of people have already heard about. So whenever we have this imprint, so let's pretend that I have a really painful belief that says I am unlovable. Okay. Which is a common belief for anxious, preoccupied or for fearful avoidance. So let's say we have this belief and we know consciously, okay, I can't actually be unlovable. And yet our subconscious mind tells that, that story. Somebody doesn't call us back. We're like, it's because they don't love me It's because I'm not lovable enough. And we catch ourselves like continuously repeating this, this painful pattern or cycle or fearing that like, we're not enough to be lovable or whatever it might be. So let's say we have this imprint. 
a lot of people will say like do affirmations, right? Like say I'm lovable, say I'm lovable. The problem with doing that is that we, our subconscious mind is where the wound is. It's not at the conscious level. Mm-hmm. Our subconscious mind does not speak language. It doesn't speak like English, right? It doesn't hear I'm lovable. How our subconscious speaks, the languages it uses are emotion and imagery. So unless we are taking our conscious mind and helping to essentially reparent our subconscious mind by speaking in its language to help clean up that wound, then we can do affirmations forever. And it's very unlikely that they're really going to take hold. So a really simple way of hacking the system becomes take that wound and then give evidence. Because when we give evidence, evidence is like a memory and all memories colored with emotion. So if I were to say, for example, you know, close your eyes, tell me your favorite childhood memory, what I would see. And I've seen this with many clients over the years, somebody closed their eyes and they smile as they're telling the story and they open up. And what happens is in the memory, we picture images and all those images have emotion. We, we, we think of being at the park with our dad or whatever it might be. And you see the images of being pushed on the swing and you feel the emotion of that memory. And so what we can do when we're trying to like reprogram is it's called auto suggestion. And there's these main steps that encompass those parts. Number one, get into a relaxed state. So after meditation, when you first wake up in the morning, last thing before you go to bed, basically your brain starts producing more alpha brain waves. So you're more suggestible. You're open to like programming yourself basically. So number one, get into a relaxed state. Number two, pick the wound you're trying to work on, this old painful story that's been plaguing you forever, and then oppose it with the exact opposite thing find 10 to 15 pieces of evidence, rinse and repeat for 21 days, you will have new programs. And if people really stick to it, it's like infallible. Like it really, really works. So we would say I'm lovable because, and we would just find 10 or 15 reasons why. And we can look in all seven areas of our life. We can look in our career, our financial area, our mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, and all of our relationships, our friendships, family, and romantic relationships. And if we can just find like one or two pieces of evidence for why we're lovable or we're enough, or we deserve to be included, or we deserve abundance or whatever it is that we're working on. And we can just find like one or two good characteristics you have in each area or one or two things that you do or how you show up that you're proud of. Like just one or two of those things for 21 days and really feeling about them. And they have to have those specific pieces of evidence. You'll see massive transformation at the subconscious level. Mm. Wow. That's awesome. And is it when you're, when you're getting those 10 to 15 pieces of evidence, are you kind of at the same time, like you're repeating them and visualizing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. As you're like writing them down. So like, let's say, for example, I say, let's say I'm working on, um, I am rejected and instead I'm like trying to feel like, no, I deserve to be accepted. Then I might say, okay, in my career, why do I deserve to be accepted? And then I might say, because I'm a hard worker. And like, for example, yesterday I turned the report in early, you know, because I'm good with people and I'm a team player. Like yesterday when I spoke up in the meeting and supported Sally, and then I go into financial area. And so you just go through the different areas of your life and you just pick like a couple specific examples because they're all memories. They all have a certain feeling in them. And then you're really using your conscious mind to speak to your subconscious mind. And then Got you it. can attract people who treat you that way once you have the reprogramming. <laughs> you will never attract people who you want them to treat you the way you want them to treat you. No. Unless you are that person to yourself first. Oh, right. That's what I meant. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no I'm laughing because you're saying you're hitting the nail on the head. And I'm like, yes. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's this really interesting thing. I like love this topic. I'm like so passionate about it, but you said it. And that's why I was laughing. It's like, 
so many people will come to me and be like, I want a partner who this, 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 this. And they have all these things is present with me, listens to me, makes me feel supported, loving. And then I'm like, okay, so how are you showing up from one to 10 in each of those areas in the relationship to yourself? And they'll be like, like a four, like a three. And the problem is that our subconscious mind at all times is trying to maintain its comfort zone. So even though our conscious mind is like, I want these things, our subconscious mind says, when we maintain our comfort zone, it's what's familiar and familiarity equals safety and survival. And at the end of the day, we're actually survival oriented still, even though we don't want to believe it. So what happens is we can have like Sally who says, I want somebody who's present and listens to me and all these things. But if Sally doesn't listen to herself, if she's not present with her own emotions, if she doesn't support herself, then even though her conscious mind will be like looking for this partner, her subconscious mind, the moment there's closeness with somebody like this will actually reject and, or won't pursue. And our conscious mind like takes in like 40 to 60 bits per second of data. And our subconscious mind takes up to a billion bits per second of data. So even though we meet somebody for like five minutes and we think like, Oh, you know, they just weren't a match. Our subconscious mind is like really building and and is attracting to people and feeling attracted to people based on, are they, do they treat us? Like we treat ourselves at a subconscious level. And in a very short time, like of meeting somebody we build based on like micro expressions and body language and tone of voice and how long somebody looks at us and maintains eye contact. We build these really intense, like, like pictures and and webs of like how somebody is. And we often end up picking the same types of people ending up in the same types of relationships because they're actually all reflecting to us, the relationship we have to ourselves. And until we clean that up and heal that, we're not going to get the ideal person or partner in our lives. Right. Yeah. Mm. And it's worth the work. Worth the work. (laughs) Even if only to just have a happier, healthier life, absolutely worth the work. Yes. I think that our listeners, including me and Eden, we're going to listen to this a couple of times and be taking notes. So it's been, it's been awesome. Um, I feel like we have about time for one more question. So um, how does self-sabotage affect the subconscious mind? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so I always tell people like, there's no actual such thing as self-sabotage. All self-sabotage is just a subconscious strategy to get different needs met than your conscious mind wants. So like people think like, oh, I keep sabotaging. I keep not showing up to the relationship, to the workplace, whatever it is. At the end of the day, like we see, I think the stat is like 88% of people fail their new year's resolution in like the first seven days. It's because our conscious mind sets the new year's resolution, but our subconscious mind is always running the show. So like growing up, I had my mom every year, she would be like, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. And like every year she'd be like saying this thing. And then every year by like day three, she would be like, oh, it's fine. Who cares? Like, you know, moving on. And, and she was like healthy and looked great and all this stuff. But she, that was her thing. It's like, I watch her repeat the cycle every single year. But then later when I learned about some of this stuff, I was like, let's do your personality needs and figure out what they were. And her personality needs, her subconscious needs that are driving all of our behaviors were like, um, social time, family, um, romantic relationships, security, and comfort were her top five. So like here we have somebody who's trying to say like, I want to exercise and eat healthy. And then her subconscious mind is like, um, that's going to take time away from social family, romantic relationships, comfort, and safety. So our, our conscious mind runs like three to 5% of everything. And our subconscious and unconscious are 95 to 97%. So unless we set goals, that are aligned with our subconscious personality needs, we're going to keep feeling like we're sabotaging when really it's just that like our subconscious mind has different priorities. And so what we can do is we can learn to link these things together once we're aware of our subconscious needs. So what I helped her to do is be like, okay, 
How can I go to cooking classes with friends? How can I go to workout classes either with family members, with friends, or from the comfort and security of my own home and work out at home? How can I wear clothes that I'm comfortable wearing? How can I make sure that I'm doing workouts that I feel certain about and sure and comfortable doing? And so what we start doing is we take our goals and we link them to our subconscious needs so we can line them up. And then all of a sudden, like life becomes so much more effortless. And it's not like, oh, we have to will ourselves into doing these things. It's like, no, it doesn't have to be so difficult. We can just align these things instead. And as we do that, life becomes so much more resistance free. Wow. I have never <laughs> thought about it this deep before. And I, I even yeah. have certifications and like a million things. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, oh, that's amazing. Okay, so we could probably take uh, another two hours to talk to you. Right. We're going to have to cut you off, though, now. <laughs> One last question. Can you talk about your any upcoming projects that you have? And how can we find you? Yeah, so um, I, I release a new course every single month um, through our program. So I have the personal development school. It's basically personal development for the subconscious mind. It's like all these different tools about relationships, boundaries, communication, all these things, but at the subconscious level. So I'll have like a reprogramming component. And that is at www.personaldevelopmentschool.com. And then I also have a YouTube channel and um, I put out a free video every single day on YouTube and it's personal development school dash Thais Gibson. Okay. And you guys can see her the spelling in yeah. the title, but it's T H A I S, just in case. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, your YouTube has a huge following. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we've been putting out a daily video for like a year and a half now, and the daily video moved things along pretty quickly. So. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for having me. It was so fun chatting with you guys. Yeah. yeah thank you for all the great info. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Kim, we're going to sign yeah, off. We're signing out. Thank you everyone for listening Bye. and give us feedback in the comments. Bye. 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 For more information on Eden, go to EdenSuston.com. For more information on Kim, go to KimLifeCoach.com. Make sure to follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Talk Purpose and Truth Podcast. If you loved this episode, you'll love every episode. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. Thank you for listening.